On this Water Cooler, we welcome you to the winner's circle. Two prime ministers, seven election victories between them, more than 21 years in government. Two prime ministers who led their parties from opposition into government. My name's Nick Cater. I'm the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, which has the honour of being the custodian of the John Howard Lecture. The seventh John Howard Lecture was given by Stephen Harper, former Prime Minister of Canada and one of the great centre-right leaders of the post-Thatcher-Reagan era. After the lecture, in front of a live audience at the Wesley Centre in Sydney, we invited John Howard to join Mr Harper in conversation. Uh, Could I just start, Stephen, by thanking you for your very gracious remarks about me, but more importantly, congratulate you on... uh, a very thought-provoking address on an issue that should concern all of us because it is a challenge not only to governments but it's also a big challenge to political parties. Can I say at the beginning that I agreed with virtually everything you said um, and I was absolutely delighted that you made the point that has to be made again and again that the last... 20 years have seen more people lifted out of poverty than at any time since mankind began. And um, that is not said enough. It's the great triumph of globalisation and competitive capitalism because without those two forces, it wouldn't have occurred. I mean, we hear all these arguments about the great moral challenge being climate change or something else. But the moral challenge, I've always thought, and... Uh, uh, you know, I'll even invoke uh, the, name after, the, the, the name of the person after which this centre is named, John Wesley, is, is helping the underprivileged and the downtrodden. Uh, and after all, on an international scale, helping the poor of the world is still a greater moral challenge in my judgment than anybody else. Now, having sort of got that off my chest, um, uh, uh, and I'm not used to this sort of role, so if it become boring, um, please... People feel free to interrupt. Um, Can I put the proposition to you, Stephen, that one of the reasons why we've got a lot of disruption is that the political class doesn't take any notice of clearly communicated decisions of the public? Isn't that really the problem that is now bedevilling a country we both have some affection for, a part, of course, from our own? In the United Kingdom. Yeah, look, I think that's a big. Um, I think that's a big part of it. One of the things I talk about in my book is a distinction. I I did not invent it. It's uh, British journalist David Goodhart who invented yeah. it. The distinction between somewheres and anywheres. And I think what is part of what has happened in the age of globalization is we've had, uh, you know, when I say an elite class, an affluent class of people who are in often in leadership positions in government and business and elsewhere, who live lives that are completely different than the people in the countries they come from. They can move from job to job in different countries, in different cities. They're often married to people from different backgrounds. Um, and more importantly, you know, they look, listen to different publications, they listen to different programs. More important than anything, if anything goes wrong for them, they just pick up and move. You know, it's, it's great to say, um, as you know, some of these people will say, let's have open borders. 
we don't need any control. Well, you know, that's fine, first of all, if you live in a, if you're either a globalist or you live in a gated community where you're never going to see any immigrants anyway. Um, but secondly, if you happen to be wrong, that's a radical assumption, and if you happen to be wrong, we're just going to move on to another country. And it's easy for the people to dismiss the views of the people who live there because they will actually endure the consequences of policy. So I think we have this unusual situation now it, frankly, un, unlike anything since sort of some of the medieval monarchs, where the ruling class is actually exempt from the consequences of policies that they advocate. So it's easy for them to have completely different views and just dismiss other views. This is obviously most extreme in Europe. It's obviously most extreme in Europe. Um, the European Union, now first of all, I happen to think, and I say this in the book, I have mixed feelings about the European Union. I think on one level, the European Union really is an unprecedented human achievement. When you think of the kind of 100 years of war the European Union had given the world, and then within a few decades they created this, you know, relatively well-united and integrated economic bloc and broke down borders and tried to break down the animosities of, of history, I think it's a remarkable achievement. But there are some functional problems that are pretty serious in the European Union, and more important, there has been a view of European elites that, you know, we don't, better not to listen to the people, just get out in front of them, show how things work, and they'll come along. That's great until you screw up, right? And they screwed up on the common currency, and frankly, they screwed up, they screwed up on, er on erasing the borders, not in the sense that that wasn't a good idea. They screwed up on erasing the borders without establishing a common border authority for the union itself, an effective border authority. So they did some pretty major, uh, they left the people with some pretty major problems. And their response continues to be, we just ignore it. You know, in, in Europe, literally, you know, they'll have an election. Italians will elect a government. It's not a government I agree with, but they'll just decide we're just going to veto their budget or a country votes, will not, will not vote to ratify a constitutional amendment. They'll just say, vote again. Vote again until you get it right. Yeah, well, this, this is what they're trying to do in Brexit, vote again until, yeah, until that, we get that, it right. Well, that is exactly the point I'm yeah. making, and this, I think, is a, a fundamental reason why there's so much disillusionment. I mean, the Brexit referendum, now, now as many people know, I, if I'd have been British, I'd have voted to leave the European Union, and I don't think my feelings about the European Union are quite as mixed as yours, Stephen, but anyway, um, uh, we'll, we'll... I we'll, think that's true. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll put that to one side. But the, the truth is they voted in huge numbers, clearly, to leave, and it seems to me that there's been a determined attempt in Great Britain from both sides of politics to essentially frustrate, torpedo, the decision. Well, and, and in the European Union itself. And the European Union. Yeah. And the European Union, sensing Theresa May's <clears throat> political weakness after her disastrous early election ploy, which left her in a weaker position. And you've really got a, a really an alliance. Well, as I, say, I think this is broader than that issue, John. Mm. I, what, what troubles me, and look, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, as I say, I'm a political conservative. And I think being a political conservative and understanding the lessons of history and understanding the lessons of good policy means you are often taking positions that are different than public opinion and trying to persuade the public along the way. But I think that's far different than saying, if anyone disagrees with me, they're wrong, stupid, and bigoted, and I don't have to listen to them. 
And, you know, I look at, in much of the mainstream Western media, coverage of any election, the results they don't agree with. People are dumb, they should be ignored. The important thing is that whoever got elected, God help us, they got elected in the first place, they better change all their policies tomorrow, or we'll have an investigation and have them removed from office. And this, you know, we're either Democrats or we're not. Um, there are lots, I don't, I don't like the policy choices of the current government of Canada. I don't like a single thing they're doing. But they were democratically elected. And the fact that they're making these choices is something I have to take into account and wrestle with and respond to. I just can't say, you know, why don't we hold an investigation and have Justin Trudeau, you know, removed from office for bad fashion sense or something. Um, you know, but this is the kind of nonsense we're getting in a lot of commentary in Western countries. And, and I think it's profoundly dangerous. With, when the public wakes up, I mean, we think there's a political revolt now. If the public wakes up and understands that many of the, quote, elites or establishment actually reject democracy in principle, which is mm. kind of the underlying narrative here, I think we're in for a, a really big rebellion because um, I think, look, I actually think a lot of ordinary people are humble enough to know that they don't know everything, but they think that they have some say in their own lives and the idea that somebody else, just because he's, you know, experienced, globally aware, um, well-educated, knows more about his own life than he does I just think that's something that ordinary people are not going to buy. And it, by the way, it's untrue as well. You know, I'm a great admirer in government. We, you know, we, we were sometimes accused of not listening to expertise, but I value expertise. I value education. I value science. But, you know, you can't tell people what's good for them without their consent in the modern world. Can I, can I also say that I really <clears throat> warm to your observation about racism, when you made the obvious point that the uh, deprecation of racism is used to collectively condemn uh, the policies you don't like. When I, uh, in my more introspective moments, um, I, I try and recall some of the comments I made when I was Prime Minister that got a bit of publicity. And I guess the one that's uh, lasted longer than any was when I said, we will decide who comes to this country right. and the circumstances in which they come. Yeah, you see. Now that, Stephen, that was branded as racist right. by my opponents. And it wasn't. It was a statement of the reason why this country, like your country, has successfully absorbed millions of migrants without regard to colour from all around the world. And it was the basis. If you persuade the public that you are in control of the immigration program, they will support a large immigration program. And I think, I think that is uh, uh, fundamentally important. And the other point I, I made, you, you, you mentioned Goodhart's book uh, about somewheres and anywheres. Uh, another very, very in interesting book that's come out in Britain recently um, is a book written by a man called Kaufman called White Shift and it analyses the reasons for the Brexit result and it makes the very interesting, produces the very interesting analysis that large numbers of British citizens of a heritage out of the Indian subcontinent, either Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, 
or Sri Lankan, voted to leave because they resented the large volume of European migration into the West Midlands and into the, some of the Birmingham and areas of Britain which, where they lived because they feared they were going to lose their jobs. And it's an analysis that makes a great deal of sense, as anybody who's visited Britain will know of the, 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 the contribution of people from Eastern Europe to certain occupations in Britain it was, has been fundamental and has had an enormous effect. Now, it, it does sort of give the lie to racism as it is commonly defined in political discussion of white and black. This, of course, is, is, is colour uh, rejecting too many people of European background. So I, I really applauded that, but could I just go on to the issue of nationalism? One of my strong feelings, and I'd be interested in yours, is that we have allowed nationalism to be rubbished, and I thought the attempt of Macron <coughs> to say, establish a difference between nationalism and patriotism, I think the two uh, concepts to the average man or woman are interchangeable. Um, surely the organising principle of international relations is still nationalism. When I was Prime Minister and I looked at our own Asian Pacific region, I didn't tackle relations with Indonesia or India or Japan in the framework of APEC or the framework of the East Asia Summit. I looked at them in a bilateral sense and I thought we had a good foreign policy when we had good relations with Indonesia, good relations with China, good relations with India, good relations with Malaysia. That was difficult on occasions. Uh, but um, <clears throat> so isn't, isn't it a mistake to see nationalism as something that belongs to the past? Isn't it? I mean, once again, if I can talk of my region, of our region, if you ask most observers of politics in our region, who was the dominant figure of the last 50 years? They'd say Lee Kuan Yew. And Lee Kuan Yew was the quintessential nationalist. I mean, he, he started with absolutely nothing. It was quite extraordinary what he achieved. So, yeah, look, I, I uh, you know, my view is, I, I, this distinction some are trying to invent between nationalism mm. and patriotism, I think, is, is just a fiction. Um, nationalism, in my view, a normal, a kind of healthy nationalism is part of a healthy society. I'm a Canadian nationalist. I'd be very surprised if most people in the street would not consider them as Australian nationalists. Um, that's, I think, different than, you know, people try to kind of equate that with nativism or extremism. Um, yeah, there is such a nationalism, but not all nationalism is like that. And, you know, we talk about, in Europe, they like to talk about European elites will talk about the Second World War, look at what nationalism <laughs> wrought, but it was also nationalism in the form of British nationalism, Canadian nationalism, American nationalism that defeated it. And, and for that matter, Russian nationalism ultimately. Mm. So, um, you know, nationalism can have many different incarnations. What I know about Emmanuel Macron is this, and I don't know Emmanuel Macron. What I know is, you know, when after Le Pen won the, 
came in second in the runoff, and she was his challenger, and he had been identified with a kind of an extreme anti-nationalism. He had his own supporters waving the French flag everywhere to prove they were just as nationalistic as Le Pen, but in a healthier way. And, and like, don't get me wrong, I do not consider the National Front or Le Pen to be remotely a conservative party. I think it is genuinely a far-right party for many reasons, not just its extreme nationalism, but it has undertones of, of really overt nativism. It is a party that's actually socialist, not market-oriented. Um, so look, I think it's a far-right party, but I think Emmanuel Macron didn't dare tell the French public at that point that he wasn't a French nationalist. I think if he wants to run uh, in the next election in France as a French nationalist, he's gonna do worse than the 20% he's currently at. So, you know, like we have to be respectful of our populations. It's uh, the claiming you don't have a national identity with your country uh, is just an irresponsible position for a, a national leader, in my judgment. I'm getting a bit of a wind-up signal from uh, <laughs> Nick there. Fair enough. Um, can I just raise one other issue, though? And that is it's almost a regional thing. We had a referendum, as you may remember, in 1999 as to whether Australia would become a republic. And, you know, unashamedly, I was delighted when it went down. Um, I think uh, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> but... but one of the interesting things about that referendum, and, and Sydney audience will particularly appreciate this, is that all of the electorates, or the ridings, as you call them in Canada, that were close to the city, whether they were left-wing or right-wing, voted yes. My electorate voted yes. The uh, division of Wentworth voted yes. Bradfield, North Sydney, they all voted yes, but so did Sydney and all the Labor electorates that were geographically adjoining them. By the time um, we got to Borkham Hills and Cronulla, common sense had prevailed. <laughs> that local joke, Stephen. <laughs> the Prime Minister's electorate is, is, is in Cronulla and uh, uh, Cronulla is part of it. But, but my point is that you had this extraordinary situation where all of the inner city electorates, whether they were Labor or Liberal, voted to leave. And by the time you got away from that, um, uh, they, that people were voting in a different direction. And, and, and you had the same pattern. The, the, the strong Labor seats in the west of Sydney voted to leave, uh, voted to... to um, um, I'm fixated with Brexit, uh, 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 voted against a republic. And of course the rural seats it even more strongly. Is there something about urban life that is producing a common attitude uh, which is crossing the political divide? Now this is 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, there's obviously, and look, there has been for a long time, there's been splits in attitudes between urban and rural voters on ranges of issues. And certainly in Canada, um, you know, we saw an urban-rural cleavage on various things that dates back at least to the 1950s. Um, I guess I would say that what I think happens often in urban areas is you have, urban areas are where the 
for lack of a better term, the kind of liberal, I say the term liberal elites or the kind of center-left elites tend to live. And it's where their opinion dominates. What you'll actually see if you scratch below the surface is that while people say the cities think a certain way, public opinion in those environments is often very divided. Whereas in the more rural areas, you actually have very little division of public opinion. It's more on the other side. But if I could maybe talk about the Australia referendum as an example mm. of something I'm more profoundly concerned about on this. It's not just an urban-rural divide. It's kind of this divide between, for lack of a better term, conservatives and progressives and kind of how we see the world. Um, you know, as I say, as a conservative, my view is that change is a reality. And we have to live with it and we have to ad adapt to it. But I think it's very different than adapting to change than just having an attitude that I see increasingly on the left, which I define as a nihilistic attitude, to just kind of wipe things out. Um, there are reasons one could object to a monarchy in, in a monarchy in Australia, a British-based mo British monarchy in Australia in this day and age. Those, there are reasonable reasons that people could disagree with that. But what is the actual reason for changing it? What problem is it trying to fix? And more importantly, and this is why I say the nihilism, what is really the proposal for the alternative? I mean, it seemed to me from afar why the thing went down, not trying to fix the problem, but more importantly, the proponents couldn't really explain how the new system was supposed to work and how it would deal with the reserve powers and various other practical problems. And I just see this in so many aspects of our culture where those on the so-called progressive left increasingly have just a nihilistic view. If something is a tradition and an institution, and it is not perfect, it must be torn down, and it must be replaced by God knows what. Um, we don't really know why it's so important to tear it down. We have no idea how we're going to deal with the outcome, but let's do it anyway, because we're just cool, and this is the new cool thing to do. Um, you know, as I say, I, you can make an argument. I'm, I'm, you know, I tell people... My, my staff would gasp at this because we would have debates about the monarchy. I tell people I'm not, a, I'm not that strong a monarchist in many ways. I just happen to think we have a system that works. Um, I actually have a monarch who's exceptional, but we also have a system that works, that served our country well. No discernible reason to replace it. Why would I do that? Um, and yet people dedicate their lives to these kinds of causes. I could go over any number of them, but... I think this is, this is what scares me about the West. If I'm worried about the West, it's not the current populism or the current political turmoil or even the degree of technological disruption. Um, I'm concerned about the West when I see social attitudes that are unsustainable as reasonable way ways to run one's life and one's society. And, you know, it is important that we have gratitude and appreciation for what we have built and that we build from it. And when I see the attitude that, you know, everything's, because something's wrong, everything's wrong, and it all must be destroyed, like this is a very, very unhealthy way. And, you know, you go to, I tell you, you go to places like China, and I'm a big, I'm a hawk on China, I'm a big critic of China. But you go to people, places like China, and people are optimistic, forward-thinking, and how can they build on what we have? And, you know, if something doesn't work well, well, let's try and build around it rather than tear it down. 
And if we adopt, if we continue to see this kind of attitude being propagated in, in, in our societies by elites, and by the way, not just by left-wing elites or you know, social activists or even academics, often I hear this kind of nonsense coming out of corporate leaders now. And um, we cannot operate like this. Uh, so as I say, I think the, the monarchy debate was just a, an example of what I think is a much more profound problem. Finish on this, but you you won't be surprised to know that um, Jean Chrétien, one of your predecessors, who of course was in office when our referendum was held, kept in regular touch with me, and he was mightily relieved that uh, the referendum was defeated in Australia. Not necessarily because he was the most passionate monarch that I ever met, but it meant that the issue wouldn't have to be put <laughs> put on the table in Canada. Yeah, it was. <laughs> No, and that's absolutely right. See, John Cretchen was an interesting character. Um, he was opposite party from me. I was his leader of the opposition for a time, and we disagree on more things than we agree on. But John, um, John Cretchen was an institutional conservative. Hmm. And John Cretchen was an institutional conservative because he grew up in Quebec politically during the separatist movement, and he understood that if you start to willy-nilly open questions like the monarchy, mm. you risk blowing the whole country the whole apart from the ramifications yeah. of that kind of a debate. You know, well, if you gotta get rid of the monarchy, why do we need the federal government? And why do we need this and that? Why do we need a military? And John Cretchen, this kind of thing frightened him because he had seen, you know, we had some pretty extreme elements in the Quebec nationalist movement, which is fortunately the separatist movement, now a bit in eclipse, but he understood that, um, and, and once again, Quebec nationalism is something I can understand, but he, he understood that just a kind of a, passion, a, a movement based on the passionate denial and, and desire to dismantle something is actually pretty dangerous if it gets out of control. Well, could I just finish again, Stephen, and say thank you for being here, and, and it's been great talking to you. I enjoyed immensely working with you, albeit for a shorter period of time than I would have. But well, some valuable time and when I was yeah, in opposition. That's, yeah, that's yeah. right. But the, the democratic process intervened and I still remember with very great affection the honour you paid me in inviting me to address a joint sitting of the Canadian Parliament. You made a great speech. Can I tell you one thing about what John said in that speech? I know we keep going, but you don't really have a deadline here, do you? <laughs> Just, it's, just, it's just the need to get out of this alcohol-free zone. That's really all, all it's really about. Yeah. I understand Australians. This, this we have in common. Um, as I say, if you take Canada, just the English-speaking part of it, and you put it in a warm climate, it's Australia, right? I mean, that's basically the truth. But what John said, the key point John made in the speech of the Parliament of Canada, 2007, he said that the most important thing in the modern world from the standpoint of the health of our societies has been the preeminence of the world of the United States. And essentially benevolent, cult democratic, and culturally close superpower. And the day we do not have or have the risk of that not being the main preeminent power and the main preeminent power in our lives, we will very wish 
very quickly that we were back there again. So I think that uh, kind of and, and can I has kind of come true. Bring that right up to date uh, in, 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 in saying that I think this decision that came out of the APEC gathering to strengthen and expand the Manus Island Naval Base, and I'll show my age again, but Manus Island was a sore point between the Labor government of Ben Chifley and the American administration immediately after World War II. And on that particular occasion, the American administration was wanting Australia to shoulder a burden which the Chifley government said it couldn't do. I think it's very interesting, and I'm going to sound very partisan saying this, that, that the leader of the opposition has been criticising uh, uh, what the Prime Minister has done at the APEC meeting. I think this Manus Island decision is some of the best national security need, uh, news that I've heard for a very, very long time. And uh, uh, I really do. So I'll bring this up to date as well, which is to say that that's a good way to transition, which is to say what a great decision by the present Prime Minister yeah. of Australia. And I will say that if my leader had been Prime Minister of Canada, he would have been in on that decision. Mm. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that conversation between John Howard and Stephen Harper, two of the great centre-right leaders of the post-Thatcher-Reagan era. This is the Water Cooler podcast for the Menzies Research Centre. My name's Nick Cater, and we look forward to welcoming you again soon. Bye.